I'm Margaret Mueller, President and CEO of the Executives Club of Chicago, Chicago region's top business forum. Join me on the Executives Exchange as we go deep with some of the most successful executives from the Chicago region and unlock the keys to their success. Trust me, you're going to want to hear this. On today's episode of the Executives Exchange, we welcome Lior Ron, head of Uber Freight, with guest host Christine Shavink, president and CEO of Sure. Lior shares his story and how being a child of immigrant parents taught him life lessons and developed his passion for innovation. He describes his vision for the future of freight, the role of autonomous vehicles will play, and so much more. So, Lior, um, I would like to start out our conversation today kind of at the beginning and your early years. So, uh, growing up in Israel, did you plan to become an entrepreneur from a young age? Um, did you ever change your mind along the way and want to do something else? Uh, I always wanted to, uh, from a very young age, uh, invent stuff, uh, whether, whether it was... Uh, building robots uh, at uh, my uh, room as a kid uh, or programming games. I remember when we all f- first got our like first uh, computer system uh, in the early 80s. Uh, so I always wanted to um, uh, build stuff and uh, I've al- always enjoyed uh, building stuff, uh, whether it was uh, games or robots or a, a telescope uh, at a very young age, just the whole air, a, area of possibilities that one can do through technology just fascinated me to no end. And then as the years uh, went over, kept practicing, how can I, with all this like stuff that I just felt compelled on building, can help uh, support people, uh, help uh, people achieve uh, maybe something they were not able to achieve before, uh, uh, do some good uh, with those uh, uh, build-ups. So it was all building-led, technology-led, and slowly but surely that propelled me uh, into entrepreneurship. But the initial love, the initial uh, uh, kick and drive came from just the joy of a kid wanting to build stuff. So how did you go from that desire of, of building things into your formal education of computer science as opposed to maybe a more traditional engineering route? How did computer science happen? I've looked into a bunch of uh, practices um, and uh, actually started as a kid uh, learning at uh, the Technion, which is the Israeli Institute of Technology, learning mathematics, uh, learning electrical engineering, at some point, I even consider a, a law studies, uh, if you believe it or not. But I kept coming back to computer science because I kept seeing computers as this amazing general purpose tool that can impact so much change and the breadth and the depth of uh, those opportunities that computer science was opening to me as a kid uh, was just uh, always so wide and 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 so uh, encouraging. So uh, when I was interested in biology, at some point, then I realized, wait, computer science actually helps with biology research. And uh, whether when I was interested in space, and after I was like done with my astronaut uh, dreaming phase, uh-huh. uh, and even when I was actually applying to be a pilot at the Air Force, uh, I was like, wait. All of those planes run on a computer system in the end of the day. So I just kept going back to computer science was this big liberator and enabler that's touching so many facets in society, but yet was so fresh and new. And it felt like every time I stepped into the computer science building at the Technion, it, I felt liberated, the energy. And the, like you can see that everybody's like, exploring the frontier and when I stepped in into uh, other faculties um, it was you know it was very clear slower moving people are a bit more in their ways so at that point computer science was both the wild west frontier on one end but also this like amazing enabler for society on the other Mm -hmm. end and I, I knew I kind of found my destiny with that. So it's, it sounds like at a very young age, you were connecting the dots between computer science as a foundation and all of these other potential technologies in the world. 
But then you also had to use those skills to like found your own organization. And that seems like a big leap to me. So how did those skills in computer science prepare you to start your own company? I think uh, first and foremost, it's the love of building and creating things. And mm-hmm. that's why I'm an entrepreneur today. So I, I can have that stage and um, mental freedom and uh, canvas to be able to bring things to life uh, as a company. Uh, and now I'm not creating things myself. I'm more sort of assembling the team and sending the vision to go and create. But it's that joy of creation building uh, that is always paramount for anything you follow in life and specifically in entrepreneurship where you really li- you really need to be in love with the act of uh, uh, creating stuff from scratch because otherwise it's sort of um, uh, definitely a stretch of imagination and uh, something relatively foolish to do uh, on your own. Um, I think the other thing that I've enjoyed uh, um, and I think uh, mapped some corollaries is uh, you need to, both in computer science and as a CEO, as a founder, you need to be a system thinker. You you need to think about how things relate to each other. You need to think about how to build on top of another layer, on top of another layer, and all of those things connect to each other. So uh, just thinking about that and thinking about uh, in a system way and thinking about how to set stuff for scale and how the various components relate to each other because in the end of the day, you need to generate a scalable, successful output that will last, whether it's a computer program or a company. Uh, those are also uh, uh, very helpful. The, the last thing I would mention is uh, although computer science sometimes is portrayed as an act, a, a, a lonely act, uh, I found it to be very people intensive. Uh, you need to collaborate. You need other uh, people and other programmers to collaborate with you. You need to figure out how to do stuff as a team. Yeah, you can do it on your own, but in the end of the day, your uh, output and uh, abilities will be hampered if you cannot figure out how to collaborate with a team. So for a very young young age, whether it's at at my computer science education, when I was surrounded with the brightest people out there, Mm -hmm. and I was not necessarily the brightest, but I was the one figuring out how to connect with those brightest people to connect the dots and create something together, or whether it's for my military career where I've also done computer science and it was about assembling a team together to go and do stuff, it was always about a group of people creating something together, and at the end of the day, entrepreneurship is about that, about getting a group of people together to believe in a vision and pointing them in the right direction and building stuff, but with them uh, for the greater good. So that um, that thinking about systems, you know, design systems, engineering, and collaborating with other people, that sounds like what you do still every day today, right? Anything mm-hmm. you want to add about that? Uh, it's the system thinking, it's the people thinking, you know, and the people thinking, I'll just add that uh, also from a, a very early stage uh, in my um, military career as well, um, it was actually a lot about uh, diversity and figuring out, specifically in the Israeli military setting, how to bring across a very wide swath of folks because everybody in Israel is uh, obliged to go to the military which Mm -hmm. means you're getting to see all walks of life and everyone uh, uh, in that experience and it's about walking across the aisle and uh, uh, with a very diverse talented group of bringing them together see a common vision allowing them to walk across differences so my first team at the age of like 19 was, you know, one uh, very elderly gentleman. I think he was like uh, 67 at that point that I'm asked to manage now. Uh, One ultra-Orthodox that uh, was part of that team. Uh, Two uh, uh, phenomenal women programmers that you need to somehow gel with the ultra-Orthodox and learn to work together. Um, One actually uh, disabled... 
a person, and I'm, I'm laughing because not uh, for that, but just to give you a sense of just how wide of the diversity mm-hmm. in such a young age and sort of like it propels you to then walk across the aisle and really learn how to empathize and how to build a cohesive set out of a very diverse set of people. Do you, do you think your experience as an immigrant influenced your ability to, to make those kind of connections or how did, how did that in general shape your perspective as a, as a business leader? I think two things. One is um, uh, the experience of an immigrant uh, and my parents immigrated to Israel and then I immigrated to the U.S. So always being a bit of the underdog, a bit of the new kid in town. Uh, I think one is uh, uh, that sort of, uh, um, and even as a kid, uh, I immigrated between different schools. I was like in one free, uh, two, three different uh, 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 schools or classes in a very short time. It just teaches you empathy and you always put yourself in the shoes of someone you're talking with to understand where they're coming from, how they're thinking, and like trying to connect as a human, as a leader, as a peer. Uh, so empathy can go a very long way, I think, in leadership. And in, as leaders, one way is for us to set the vision and like, Uh, 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 propel the, the team forward but then also listening and being empathic of what people are actually experiencing in that moment and being able to like zoom out of your self and just understanding the, the, the 360 and seeing how people uh, um, think about things were um, very helpful. The other thing I would say is uh, as an immigrant you're constantly in a constant state of being an underdog. <laughs> And you're constantly being the new one, the new person, uh, the one with the funny accent, uh, the one that doesn't necessarily belong all the way, uh, uh, the one that just comes with a different set of background. So it, it, it just, uh, I think it's actually motivating. Uh, when I hire today, I look for people with a chip on their shoulders, people that have something to prove. I definitely had my share of things of uh, stuff to prove, and I still have a lot to prove. And I think that uh, was definitely uh, helpful as an immigrant and sort of turning some weakness to a superpower as long as you're determined to prove out and to, uh, determined to work harder than anyone else and, and really lean in and go deep, then I think that's an area of strength um, for uh, leadership. You know, that, that proving yourself, that, you know, wanting to, to go the extra mile, I want to talk about maybe how that translated then into how you got into entrepreneurship. Because again, I, I just think that is a big leap. So um, can you tell us a little bit about how you made that big leap, the, the skills and knowledge that you had at that time, and maybe do a little bit of a look back and what do you wish you would have had um, at that juncture as well? I am... Um... It all came from a sense of wanting to build and wanting to control more, more and more of my destiny. So I started as an engineer, uh, built a bunch of great stuff, but then always saw that those product managers on the other end uh, uh, messing things up with the wrong product or the wrong strategy, so then became a product manager. Became a product manager, but then it was very clear, well, in the end of the day, the strategy the ability to set the product up for success is determined by the CEO or the founder. So then, okay, what's the next level? I guess I need to be an entrepreneur to be able to do that. Uh, so you need to have the drive, and that's sort of the drive, both uh, uh, the, the joy of building, but then the, the desire to control more of my destiny. Then it's about preparing for uh, the future. So I don't know exactly where my path will lead me, but I knew... that uh, uh, if I go to the valley, to the Silicon Valley, my chances of being more entrepreneurial uh, uh, will grow. So how can I get myself into that uh, amazing environment that will challenge me, that I will feel challenged, that it will take me out of my comfort zone, again, coming from the military, uh, to potentially propel, my, propel myself into what's next. So I uh, uh, got into the Stanford uh, Business School. And uh, I didn't prescribe being an entrepreneur, but I, I knew it's something I want to learn more about. And um, 
learn on a bunch of opportunities at my second year of school I was taught a class by on on strategy by the late Andy Grove the former co-founder and CEO of Intel and I have actually invented a medical device for Parkinson patients during my master thesis in the Technion back in Israel never thought anything will happen out of that But then uh, Andy, who is still the most brilliant strategic mind I have ever had a pleasure of meeting, confided with us as students after a class that he's a Parkinsonian before he shared with the media. So like a good student, I, I went after class and told Andy on what I had invented back in the technique on this medical device for Parkinson patients. Andy walked, uh, closed the door behind us and made me... Uh, promise him on the spot that uh, I will do anything in my power to commercialize this invention and he will do anything in his power to support my journey and help me commercialize that. So Andy Grove basically thrusted me <laughs> into entrepreneurship. I didn't plan on that, but I was prepared to go into something like that by surrounding myself with the right people and the right opportunities and the right environment and then When opportunity came knocking, when Andy Grove is telling you, hey, I'm going to give you seed funding. I'm going to connect you with the Parkinson Institute in Mountain View. I'm going to mentor you. We're going to do this together. You kind of just say yes. And that's what propelled me into entrepreneurship to begin with. Being ready for that, but then realizing the opportunity and walking through the door once somehow it's magically open. That's amazing. Um, I, I want to talk a little bit about, before we get to Uber Freight, I want to talk about some of your other experiences at other companies. So kind of following along these lines of creativity and entrepreneurship and strategy, um, how did you go from that point in your career um, to then going to Google? And what drew you to that company? And uh, how did you see that fitting your, your long-term goals? Uh, back to our uh, Stanford and back to a uh, professor stories of Stanford the other professor at business school was Eric Schmidt and uh, in the world a uh, <laughs> small small world and again <laughs> being in a I think the moral here is uh, I mean I, I I'm blessed I got even the opportunity to meet Andy Grove or Eric Schmidt but somehow putting yourself in a position for those opportunities to open up and then taking advantage of those opportunities and Eric Schmidt was another professor, and uh, back to the joy of building, this was the early days of Google Maps, and uh, Google Maps just came out, and it was actually hacked uh, to allow Google Maps API, and then there's uh, tons of uh, mashups, it was called the Google Maps um, uh, uh, geodata on the web. Uh, I built a, basically a search engine. Uh, out of that, just hacking uh, during my days as a student in Stanford, met Eric Schmidt, and he told me, Lior, it's a great idea, but you should build that search engine in Google, not outside of Google. Uh, so got, that sounds like a great idea to me. So I got connected with uh, the Google Maps uh, guys in a very, very early stage. And what I saw there is this amazing incubator of ideation, of creation, of sort of just forging new... frontier in computer science and everything sort of connected uh, for me so joined Google Maps uh, uh, very early on the journey and then had five amazing years there building Google Maps eventually leading product for Google Maps and helping create a lot of amazing products from uh, Street View to uh, uh, Google Maps globally to uh, a bunch of other things um, that uh, were um, amazing so that that was a bit on the Google experience. So you've had all of these happenstance connections with with people along the way a lot of this happening in the valley um, because you're talking to the executives Club of Chicago I want to talk a little bit about the Chicago connections that you have in your life experience as well so you had some time at Motorola you traveled back and forth into Chicago um, tell us about that experience and uh, and your your thoughts about Chicago So back to uh, being open to opportunities, uh, walking the corridors of uh, Google. Uh, this was 2000 and I forgot now what. Um, 2000 and, 
אקוויזישן And uh, we had a, a phenomenal uh, turnaround for the company, an innovation spree, and came up with a bunch of uh, new innovations that are in the market uh, up until now. In the process, uh, I met the amazing Motorola Mobility team out of Libreville, um, and uh, then downtown Chicago, and just fell in love with the city, uh, with the talent base, with the ingenuity, with the hard working, with the discipline, uh, with the uh, uh, drive for innovation, but innovation in a different way than what I knew in the Silicon Valley. And for me, uh, it felt like coming back home a bit. Um, it was a different take of life uh, than what I saw in the Valley. And it felt so much more familial and so much in it together. And so much more sort of like team sport versus sometimes in the valley sort of an individual sport. And I mean, one word that comes to mind is community. I felt a community of uh, uh, team members at Motorola. I felt a community in Chicago. I feel now being part of the business community, it's just very different. And it felt home to me going back to my roots and going up in a very family oriented environment that I just, fell in love with Chicago. I, I lived off a suitcase uh, initially in Libreville and then in downtown Chicago throughout the tenure in Motorola Mobility. And that's what gave me then, we'll talk about Uber Freight in a second, but that's what gave me the confidence to start Uber Freight essentially out of Chicago. And uh, uh, still to the date, I just think so highly of the immense potential Chicago has uh, at the broader ecosystem. And of course, specifically, on transportation and logistics. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor, Sure. Audio equipment for the Executives Exchange podcast is provided by Sure Incorporated. When your team is depending on you for information and motivation, you can't afford to sound anything less than clear and confident. For nearly 100 years, performers and world leaders have depended on Sure microphones. Whether you're in front of a camera or behind a podium, Sure lets you sound extraordinary. Welcome back. So let's let's get into transportation and logistics and talk about where you are today with Uber Freight. So you've um, you, you seem to have made a good career of being in the right hallways, the right classrooms at the right time, and now you're in the right place to deal with freight and logistics. Um, you know, so how does a technology person like you enter into lo- freight and logistics and what kind of um, what kind of impact do you see technology having on this particular space? Um, indeed, being in the right place in the right time. Uh, and uh, for me, the right place in the right time was uh, after uh, finishing my tenure at uh, Motorola, uh, doing a bit of a walkabout. I've done now built technology for the past 20 years. I had an amazing experience in the military and in Google Maps and Motorola and hardware and software and medical device and you name it. sort of doing my walkabout on, okay, where do I want to commit my next decade plus in terms of back to the joy of, joy of building and creating new things? And uh, I had uh, two very simple uh, uh, criteria. One is I wanted to go to a space that is still uh, wide open in terms of technology, disruption, innovation, and a place where technology, hence myself as well as a technologist, can add value. can actually sort of move the ball forward, can contribute back to society, can do some good for technology. In the end of the day, that's what we're all motivated by, uh, doing some good, helping with our superpower, wherever they are. So for me, it was like, okay, I know how to build technology. I know how to uh, uh, digitize very complex physical industries. If you think about Google Maps and essentially digitizing the entire universe, Uh, with digital mapping, 
what's the next frontier? How can I help? The, 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 the other criteria was it's, it's better be big. Because I want to go after something big and I want to go after something big so I can actually be in a position where I can help facilitate a, a big transformation. So those two simple criteria led me on a walkabout and I knew nothing about logistics. Uh, but my father was a logistics manager in Unilever Haifa. So I knew to look a bit under the hood. And what I found is what we now take for granted, but at that point, six, seven years ago, was not uh, clear for techies like me, is this ginormous industry, 4 trillion globally, 1 trillion in the US, 12% of global GDP running on fax, phone, and paper. And there's been technology in logistics before, and there's a lot of technology investment, but bringing next level digital transformation and being at a time where mobile phones are becoming prevalent and we can actually take a mobile phone and put it in the pocket of every truck driver, that was new. Uh, and just realizing how much um, transformation can we do in the uh, logistics industry because matter of fact is uh, logistics cost continue to skyrocket. This was true six years ago. This is true today because it's almost impossible to find freight and logistics capacity because the largest profession out there globally, the largest single profession globally, truck drivers, are constantly under pressure. It's a job that nobody want to do. No young person want to do nowadays. As a result, the average age of a truck driver in the US was 35, 20 years ago. 45, 10 years ago, it's now 55. It's the same baby boomers aging out of the industry. As a result, you cannot uh, uh, find enough capacity. You cannot uh, uh, control for supply chain cost. And worse off, uh, you are walking into an unsustainable future because not 10, not 20, not 30, almost 40% of the trucks going outside when we drive on a highway going next to you is empty. 40% of those miles are being driven empty. If you sum all of that up, that's like two to three percent of global CO2 emissions, two to three percent total are from empty trucks. So I saw all of those challenges. I was like, can can there be another way if we digitize the uh, industry, if we connect supply and demand, if we essentially create an Uber for freight, can we bring some efficiency and some sustainability and some cost control and cost efficiency into the market and being in the right place and right time, convince Uber that's actually a good idea. And we started Uber Freight about uh, six years ago. Well, I think it's pretty easy for us that use Uber on a daily basis to imagine how that technology is very transferable into the, the world of logistics. Um, how, how has that been adopted, I guess? And uh, how are you connecting all of those shippers and carriers and, and getting people on board compared to the older ways maybe that you just described? Yeah, think about Uber Freight is Uber for freight. It's a ginormous marketplace connecting the almost million companies on, on this side that want to ship stuff, any stuff, with more than 4 million in the U.S., dozens of millions globally, truck drivers, that want to move those things for them. But in between, there's so much fragmentation. 95% of the trucks in the U.S. are owned by fleets that have five trucks or less. So it's impossible. For any, anyone from the Coke, Pepsi, uh, Unilever, Costco of the world to the individual SMB company to connect effectively with truck driving capacity. And because everything is so fragmented, then uh, as we've discussed, 30, 40% of those miles are empty. So Uberfed is like, hey, let's digitize and create an Uber-like efficient marketplace let's onboard with mobile technology every single truck driver in the United States to a platform and they can have all the information they need at their fingertips on their mobile phone. They can see exactly what's the opportunities for them to hold stuff. They can choose exactly how much they want to hold and when. They can optimize their daily and weekly routes so they can uh, uh, maximize their time back home with the family and they can drive less and less empty because we can plan their perfect route for them so they can drive full from 
Long Beach to Chicago, turn around and drive maybe five miles across the street, a, a, a hook to a new trailer, and then drive full back to Los Angeles. And let's do that with technology so we can connect the right truck driver at the right time for the right price with the right shipper and have the information move in the speed of light and computers versus playing a tagophone with like 25 phone calls on average today that it takes in the industry to actually connect one transaction. So essentially, it's let's create a modern digital first instant marketplace for people to haul and connect uh, uh, the movement of goods and to haul freight in those trucks. So has Uber Freight actually been able to help alleviate some of the supply chain problems that we've all heard about and lived through over the last 12 to 18 months? Because we heard all the headlines last year about what you're describing, truck drivers maybe aging out and shortages and big sign-on bonuses for the drivers. And, you know, just like in general, not having enough trucks and enough drivers to get goods from point A to point B. So is Uber Freight a solution to help alleviate that problem? Uh, still going. Six years in the making. But uh, yes, I would say I think uh, we've definitely came uh, a long way. Uh, we have now six years into the making. We have created the largest virtual fleet ever created in the industry. So we have 1.7 or over 1.7 million truck drivers on the platform. That means we now connect with the majority of truck drivers in the United States. And it allows us to um, offer them a wide array of services. And it allows us to now manage almost $20 billion of freight under management from the biggest companies out there, like the Pepsi and Coke and Walmart and Costco of the world, all the way to the individual mom and pop shops. And in the process, uh, do something uh, uh, to elevate uh, those uh, um, challenges. So any, everything from uh, now um, an Uber freight driver is more efficient by average 50% of the time, more, 50% more efficient when they are on the Uber Freight platform, meaning they are running half as empty as they have used to outside of the platform. So you just took those 30% of empty miles and condensed them by half. So it's a huge boon for the environment. Now, more than um, a a lot of those uh, uh, shippers can now tap uh, in a day and age where it's very hard to get truck drivers, into the long, long, long tail of truck driving where the Pepsi or a Coke can actually do business with the mom and pop truck driver shop with the, that owns maybe two trucks, but can still, through the app and through the marketplace, connect with the biggest shippers out there. And now uh, uh, we're getting very smart about actually helping shippers uh, with each other, reducing empty miles, getting more and more sophisticated in how they plan the supply chain to the degree that we now offer more than just truckload, uh, essentially an end-to-end logistics platform for those shippers where they can outsource their entire supply chain for us to manage much more effectively than them. And we can count uh, probably 10,000 shippers, uh, more than 300 Fortune 1,000 companies that are using that platform to manage their cost, uh, drive their supply chain cost lower, uh, do something about a more sustainable future and in the process uh, uh, provide uh, the necessary longevity and business to the very long tail of truck drivers in the market. Well, it seems like, uh, yes, getting rid of those uh, empty trucks is a, is, a big, is a big step in that direction. Maybe another step in that direction, I'm not sure, would be around um, self-driving technology. So I'm fascinated by this, and I'm, I'm curious about how you see the future of self-driving vehicles for logistics. Uh, absolutely. So self-driving technology is very much needed in logistics for a few reasons. Uh, one is uh, safety. We still have on U.S. roads globally tens of thousands of unnecessary deaths every year. And if you look at uh, truck injuries, unfortunately, it's actually those accidents are even more uh, uh, harmful and uh, involve more casualties. And uh, if we have a technology that can potentially save 
thousands of unnecessary deaths a year, we might as well uh, do something to progress that. The other reality is that uh, for more and more of those trucking jobs, it's very hard to actually get the right capacity. A, a lot of those long haul miles between cities are harder and harder to get capacity because truck drivers want to be close to home, want to spend uh, time with their families. Uh, so uh, self-driving technology has the potential of creating safer roads, creating more sustainable roads because uh, the, we can actually manage things more uh, uh, sustainably from an emission perspective. Uh, and the future, once the technology will be deployed, is you can imagine a, a self-driving truck, let's say in the Texas Triangle, uh, going between uh, Dallas and San Antonio uh, autonomously. Um, and on both sides of that highway, in Dallas and San Antonio, Dallas and Houston, there's transfer hubs on both ends, which are essentially big parking lots on both ends of the highway. And uh, uh, truck drivers, like people truck drivers, and uh, self-driving trucks can collaborate with each other with the uh, human driver doing the very complicated first mile navigation through the distribution center to the side of the highway, leaving their trailer there for the self-driving truck to wait in that uh, depot, and then basically pull the trailer 10, 20, 50, 100, 200 miles to the other side of the highway where there's another local truck driver waiting for that self-driving truck to hook the trailer and then lead it to the destination in Houston and San Antonio. Both truck drivers can stay local, close to their families, can stay more utilized, uh, actually doing those loads back and forth so can actually make more money by staying more utilized versus driving empty. And the self-driving trucks can do those very long haul that uh, more and more people just don't want to do. Now, that's not, not just a vision. That's a reality today. Uh, we're doing a couple of dozens of those autonomous loads today in the Texas Triangle with our partners, with Aurora and Waymo, a lot of other fantastic partners. Um, and uh, that's still being done with a safety driver on board. As the technology matures and into next year or probably the year, the year after next, we'll see the first instances where the safety driver, this is safe enough and sort of proven in a, a, a throughout a very complicated set of testing and a, a, a proof that it's safe enough to actually exert the human driver out of the seat and then actually doing a fully scaled autonomous uh, operation. That's a reality today uh, for smaller vehicles where we now have a, a lot of self-driving activity for ride-sharing, uh, for light-duty trucks, actually, driverless completely today in Arkansas and Texas. And it's probably upon us in Class 8 trucks in sort of uh, um, big wheels uh, in the next uh, two years or so. That seems like a fascinating strategy that could overcome perhaps some of the objections and, uh, you know, things that are preventing widespread adoption of autonomous driving. What what other challenges do you think need to be overcome for, for more adoption to happen? So first of all, the technology needs to be ready. And once the technology is ready, our, my role, our role as Uber Freight, is it's not, it, we're not developing the self-driving technology. We are here to help commercialize that in a safe and scalable way once it is ready. How we can do that as, as a commercial partner. First, we can help basically orchestrate the whole move. In a similar, think about it as a, as a railroad. We're actually the, now the fifth largest provider of railroad services in the United States. Or think about it as a cross-border move where you have the first move, then you need to cross the border, then you have another move on the Mexico side. We're basically getting something similar for truck driving, for, for self-driving, where we're orchestrating the first mile, then we're helping orchestrate with the self-driving provider the middle mile. Then we help orchestrate the last mile. So that's one. The other thing that we're doing is a trailer platform and a trailer network to allow you that sort of hook and drop and allow you that like a, a switch operation where the truck driver can come, drop their initial trailer they picked up from some distribution center in Dallas on the side of the highway. The self-driving truck hooks to the trailer and carry that all the way to Houston while 
the truck driver takes a, a, a trailer that came from Houston, switches back and carries it back to Dallas. So that like switching hook operation is actually pretty complicated and we need someone to orchestrate all of that. Now, even when the technology is ready, it's not going to work always, meaning we, uh, uh, the technology providers are going to make sure that it's only working when it knows how to work. So if weather uh, is severe, don't activate it. If there's heavy traffic initially, don't activate it. Now, all of those instances, you still need a, 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 a failback, a fallback, to continue to ensure the orderly move of goods. You do that with the Uber Freight Network, where we basically step in and allow that uh, operation to happen end-to-end. So those are just some of the ways where we help commercialize, and we hope to accelerate the pace of that once the technology will be ready in the next couple of years. A lot going on. And I do want to um, make sure that I give you the chance to give me any last words or thoughts about Uber Freight in terms of, is there anything about you know industry disruption we didn't talk about? I can tell you have a lot of passion around sustainability um, in this particular industry and just kind of the, the future of, um, of this industry. So any any final thoughts on any of those kind of topics? Uh, I'll mention three uh, thoughts quickly. We spoke about autonomous future. Also, um, very bullish about the sustainability uh, potential here. We just moved our first electric uh, truck uh, load on the platform about a few weeks ago. And we are now accelerating the deployment of electric trucks uh, on the network in parallel to saving more and more of those unnecessary empty miles. So tons of potential and something I think we all share the passion of doing something about the biggest societal problem facing us as society. The other thing I'll mention is it's it's great to be able to incubate this business as part of Uber. It gives us scale and with our success, it's been very gratifying to now have a one-stop shop essentially for all logistics needs. So what we have done over the last five, six years in uh, trucking, we're now doing in less than truckloads, smaller trucks, in crossing the border to Mexico and Canada, in being the uh, fifth largest rail provider with the rail system, uh, in LTL pooling, which is about taking uh, uh, two trucks and combining them into one, two uh, not food trucks, combining them to one similar to Uber pool, and many of those other services, and having that essentially one-stop shop now allow us to go to companies, to Fortune 500 companies, and tell them, hey, we are probably your best platform and best way to reduce your logistics costs. Because, you know, looking at this bottle of water here next to me, 50% of the cost now of moving water is the cost of that water being on a truck. 30% of the cost of the food that we buy at a Walmart at Costco shelf is the cost of moving that food around. So when logistics costs go uh, double, that's an inflationary force that we all feel uh, in, uh, as consumers and, and do something about that. The last thing I'll mention, uh, going back to the passion and technology, and I've seen it over and over and over again, technology being the force for a, a democratizing access, in this case to logistics. Because now we have... Uh, the millions of small truck drivers and the million of small businesses being empowered to have access to logistics and run it on, on, those, on their own terms. I'll give you two quick examples. One is uh, um, only 7% of uh, uh, truck drivers in this industry are unfortunately women. Only 7%. Why? No access to safe parking spots and facilities, well, let's do something about that. We empower truck drivers with a one to five star rating. So they just rate every facility visit with rate and leave some feedback. We show that feedback back to shippers so they can actually renew their facilities and make them safer for women drivers. Let's allow bidding in the app so you can bid on the load versus picking up the phone because guess what? I got dozens of female truck drivers telling us when they pick up the phone and call and try to negotiate for the price of that load, they are being discriminated. They're getting a, a, a different price than the price they need to basically send their son 
to negotiate those prices on their behalf, what if we just allow technology to do that and they can bid on the load without even picking the phone and have a more transparent back and forth? So that's the other thing that I think motivates us and makes me very excited about the potential here, the potential of democratizing access to logistics through technology. You know, I would think what you mentioned earlier, too, giving drivers the opportunity to kind of do that final mile, final 10 miles, that would give women a much greater opportunity as well. So some fantastic ideas. So let it be said that Lior Ron is a person who is always in the right place at the right time. So I hope these are all problems that you're able to solve at Uber Freight. Um, I would like to get to the favorite part of our podcast for some people, which is the rapid fire questions where we get to know you a little bit more in person. So I'm going to give you five questions, kind of rapid fire, and we'll end that way. So what is the first thing you do in the morning? Uh, I will uh, have to say that it's spending some quality time with my kids. Uh, We have a beautiful uh, 12-year-old and a beautiful three-and-a-half. And and just opening the morning with them, uh, trying to sometimes prepare breakfast and then uh, taking them to school. I know that's my time off uh, for the day. Sort of help me get my bearing, help me engage. Always uh, just uh, help, help make me fresh up uh, for the day, just giving a separate uh, perspective. So very grounding indeed. Very grounding. So (laughs) what is, switching gears completely, what is your favorite city? Uh, I'll have to go with my hometown, uh, if you'll entertain me, which is Haifa, Israel. It's a beautiful city in the north of Israel. It's where the mountain, the Carmel Mountain, meet the ocean. Uh, It's uh, just a very special place where... You get an amazing, amazing beaches and ocean and mountain and food and uh, one of the best university town worldwide with Technion, who has like probably top 10 most Nobel Prize winners ever, Technic- uh, Israel Institute of Technology. So lots of fun memory uh, from uh, uh, Haifa and uh, I'll, I'll have to go with that as my favorite place. That's a good choice because then you don't have to select a U.S. city. So <laughs> what about, aside from anything that starts with the letter U, I'm going to say, your favorite <laughs> tech tool, your favorite tech tool or app? <laughs> uh, I'll have to confess my uh, slight uh, chess addiction and uh, choose uh, chess.com. Mm-hmm. Uh, for anybody that have not uh, tried this, and uh, now I think post-COVID, there's probably a couple of tens of millions of uh, people that have tried it, highly recommended. It's another like nice five, 10 minute, 10, 10 minute break in my day. It's so engaging. Everybody can try it out. Chess is uh, such a great uh, exercise for the brain. And again, it's just one of those when I feel when after I feel super engaged doing that, you get to play against anyone worldwide. And then I feel very energized finishing that. So I'll, I'll go with the chess.com. It's not an app, it's a website, but it loads perfectly on mobile as well. As my recommendation. That sounds like fun. <laughs> um, what, switching gears again, what is your professional mantra? Um, I, I don't know if I can succinctly say it in a sentence, but it's something like, you know, like don't, don't wait for an opportunity, create it. Uh, I think yeah. we spoke in my career on a few of those instances where I, I think I see so many talented people, so much amazing potential, just a bit more chutzpah and a bit more just being in the right spot and creating those opportunities that so much, people spend so much time uh, crafting their craft. If they can spend a bit more time on uh, uh, preparing and then creating those opportunities and it doesn't necessarily mean being an entrepreneur. It means uh, uh, increasing your odds uh, um, leaning in, pushing, being in the right place, having the right mentor in an organization, being part of some group that can open you opportunities, put the time, even if you're an introvert, put some time into networking. I know it's hard. I've been an introvert, but like put the time. Believe me, it's going to pay off. So it's like, what are ways that you can create opportunities Mm -hmm. in your life? And uh, from uh, what I'm trying to do in Uber Freight is give opportunities to people that want to have those opportunities and they can push and be their own entrepreneurs and being innovators and essentially provide them the perfect uh, lab for uh, logistics innovation 
uh, in the industry. So I'm, I'm a big believer in that. So I think you just answered part of my last question, which is, if you could say something to your younger self, what would you say? Is there anything else you would advise your younger self? I would advise my younger self to do exactly that, to prepare and make opportunities. But then, so you got into opportunities, you'll succeed because we're all sort of like, you know, going for it. But then it's knowing how to persevere. So then the, the, the other last advice I'll give myself is, as a young person, is uh, just, you know, whenever you fall, get back up. And, and it's so important to have that quality. And I, I, I think uh, I'm thinking now with my kids and how we educate them, how do we expose them to failures? <laughs> and how do we allow them to experience that in a sort of a trusted environment? but still allow them to uh, be exposed to that because I think life is a lot about also learning how to recover, learning how to like dust off after we fall and uh, uh, go to the next step. And, you know, even this podcast, like we, we discussed a bunch of my successes and like how I got these amazing opportunities. What we didn't discuss is the 90 other times where I miserably failed and I made amazing, stupid mistakes. And I was like super, super... A, a, a bad at something or I missed on a big time but then recovering collecting myself having belief dusting off and just going back into the game I think that's as important as getting into the game to begin with well we'll save that for our next podcast because <laughs> I, I do think that's part of growing and learning that's the only way that it happens so I truly thank you for your your time and your stories today. I think it was really enlightening and it's wonderful to talk to somebody that has such passion for what they do so thank you Lior thank you thank you for doing this thanks for hosting that's all for today's episode of the executives exchange sponsored by sure incorporated thanks for listening. If you have Chicago speakers you think we should cover, please send us an email at media at executivesclub.org. The Executives Exchange is a production of the Executives Club of Chicago. Audio equipment for the Executives Club podcast is provided by Shure. Whether you're making a point or making history, Shure lets you sound extraordinary. It's written by me, Margaret Mueller, produced by Eva Pinar. Research and support from the staff of the Executives Club of Chicago. We appreciate you subscribing and reviewing the show from wherever you listen. Feel free to follow the club on Twitter at Exec Club and on LinkedIn. If you have more questions or are interested about becoming a member at the Executives Club of Chicago, check us out on the web at executivesclub.org.